tonight on a very special episode of Journey After Reading. We are live here from Philadelphia, Pennsylvania and Wingate, Pennsylvania, respectively. Oh man, they knew I was in Philly. Are you sure you want to like give them the town? I'll go back and uh, I'll go back and beep it. Just blink. Yeah, replace it. Say it's like Bird in Hand, Pennsylvania. Yeah, Bird in Hand. A different place I just learned about. Uh, this is very special for two reasons. Nick, pick a reason. Oh, well, this is the first time we've ever recorded um, Not in the Same Room. Mm-hmm. Um, this is, oh, it's your birthday. Yeah, well, I told you to pick one. I, I was waiting for you to say one of the reasons, then I was going to say the other reason. The miracle of you your birthday. both reasons. Um, that this is in fact my birthday episode and avid listeners will know that that makes for a very special episode that Nick has uh, thrust upon us. Yeah, Um, if you remember that time on air that I decided we were going to do birthday specials, well, this is the payoff. Yeah, where I got fucking blindsided. (sighs) Just like that kid by that car. (laughs) In that movie I made you watch. That is... True. It was a good Uh, movie. Before we get into that, we should, because we won't really talk about Dern much later, let's talk about Dern now. That's true. This is a Dernless episode, as I stated in my arbitrary ruling a few episodes ago. The birthday movie we choose for ourselves can be any movie, with or without Dern, although probably without Dern would be better, because that would spoil later Derns. Anyway, so yeah, Dern, what's up with her? How's she been handling this? She, okay, so this was interesting. Interesting. She posted on Instagram a picture, and I want to preface, I think we're all sort of handling this, you know, quarantine, COVID-19 situation in different ways. I think it can be um, emotionally and psychologically taxing on all, um, let alone physically, you know, physical health. And what I suspect is that this post by Laura Turn gave us some glimpse into her own psychological struggles with this, which is fair. We're all allowed to have them. She's not above emotional breakdowns um, or psychosis, perhaps. And says with all of us. And what she posted was a a picture of her her friend's Lego set, and that's friends as in the television show Friends, a scene from Central Perk the popular uh, coffee shop frequented by the characters of Friends uh, in Lego. And they were social distancing. She had moved the Lego figurines of Chandler and Ross and Monica and Rachel and Phoebe and Joey further apart from the, from the normal positioning of the Central Perk Friends Lego, Lego set. Um, and it was curious. It was. Um, you know, Legos are a good way to spend time. I actually just had to check our list to see if she was in Friends, because I thought maybe she might have guessed it on an episode. She was not. So, uh, yeah, I mean, you know, it's a very minimal Lego set. There's not really much going on. Like, it didn't take her long, but you can tell she definitely poured her heart and soul into this. And I get the the caption, if I recall correctly, suggested that this was... This was not, say, the way someone might get a puzzle during this time and build it. It was rather her friend's Lego set that 
had been a staple in her life for some time, which at the very least is very curious, interesting. Everyone needs a ritual. Everyone needs a ritual, and this is Durant's, and it does humanize her a bit. Sometimes I think especially, you know, when you're devoting um, time and energy to sort of viewing her in, in you know, the, the light of Hollywood, then she can seem above us all. So it makes her feel human, but I also wondering, wonder if maybe she's just really struggling to cope. Maybe. I mean, as we all know, um, David Schwimmer is a famous Hollywood vagabond. He does not own a home. He just kind of floats from kind star friend to another. So perhaps when he was living on Dern's couch for several weeks, because Dern's too nice, she wouldn't kick him out. He gifted her this set. It's a nice maybe. little thing for housing me. Maybe she's just a little baddie. Maybe she like you know, likes essential oils and friends Lego sets. I thought you meant baddie, like B-A-D-D-I-E, like... Oh, she's a little baddie, that dirt. And I was like, oh, that's, that's a little saucy. No, 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 batty. Batty, yeah. Batty old woman. She was also um, playing Jax on Easter with her kids, so... What's that? Fun. She was playing Jax. Jax! Oh, man, yeah. you ever play Jax, Nick? Yeah, oh, I'll show you. Nick is showing me, for the listeners, what I'm seeing here is um, presumably Laura Dern's hand or her children's hands playing Jax. She does have children. Anyway, I didn't take a screenshot. Um, So yeah, you know, Dern's doing well, I think. I think we're all trying our best. Yeah, um, but Nick, I want to talk about one other thing that's Uh, perhaps Dern adjacent. Ah, the fact that we're getting... um, we're getting a steam piled by the AV club. Yeah. Oh yeah. Okay. Yeah. Oh, a great Nick, word. Do you want to? Do you want to explain this one? Well, a nice young man named Jesse Hassinger wrote an article about Dern today at two p.m. And uh, we have a distinct feeling that this might lead to a better produced podcast than we have, which will bury us and all of our listeners with us. No one will survive this. And I want to I want to clarify here that you know there's a lot of Dern press. She's big. She's on top of the world right now. So it's not that it's not that we feel we have a monopoly on Dern. Uh, but what this is is a review of the 1985 Laura Dern film Smooth Talk, based on a haunting Joyce Carol Oates story allegedly. Hmm. And that's our thing. This is on our list. We were going to get there. Sure, the RNG hasn't assigned it yet, but at some point we were going to watch this and discuss it. And Jesse, since you're listening, fuck you. Yeah. Fuck you, Jesse Hassel. You couldn't see Nick's air quotes when he said, nice young man. You look kind of old. You're definitely not nice. And fuck yourself. I hope you get COVID. Yeah, his last article before this was about the Trolls World Tour film. <sighs> Piece of shit. He did call it shameless, though. I don't know. I think Jesse's shameless. You know, he helps run sportsalcohol.com, which I'm upset that I even mentioned, because now even I'm curious and might give him some hits on <laughs> We're going to end up reading this man's entire yeah. bibliography of articles. <laughs> This is now a Jesse Hassinger uh, podcast. Have to have him on. <laughs> I'll tweet at him when I release this. Yeah, episode. yeah. Make let him know. Work. That'll be our very first tweet. <laughs> Telling a man that you mocked him openly. 
Boom podcast feed. This is this is shameless. Um, should we get into it? Let's get into it. So, what movie did you choose for your day of birth? I picked, and I want to preface by saying, like, mainly the reason I picked this. This was a movie I went down a little bit of a Robert Altman rabbit hole um, about a year ago, and watched okay. just a few of his films. And came, had read some reviews about this one and found it in the depths of the internet. And basically, since then, I haven't had anyone to talk to about it because no, none of my contemporaries had seen it and most were entirely unaware of its existence. So this was partly like a selfish opportunity to just get someone else to see this film so I can discuss it with them. And I had that opportunity. And the film is 1993's Shortcuts. It is three hours and 10 minutes long. It, in Robert Altman's signature style, has uh, an ensemble cast. And I feel like ensemble would be written in all caps and have little asterisks and squiggly lines on either side. Um, it is something to behold, and to wit, we've got Andy McDowell. Now you name someone. Um, Tom Waits. Tim Robbins. Huey Lewis, apparently. I missed that one. Francis McDormand. Um, Robert Downey Jr. Lyle Lovett. The, my favorite person in this movie, um, Jack Lemmon. Wonder, yes, absolutely. I, Lily, Lily Tomlin. Um, oh, there's so many. Um, that guy who plays the realtor that Annette Benning fucks in American Beauty. Uh, Fred Back when he was young and looked like a greaser, like an evil greaser. Evil greaser. <laughs> yeah, you know what I'm talking about. Stormy Weathers. What's his face? Um, Tim Robbins plays a bad man. <laughs> <laughs> Tim Robbins is a real irredeemable piece of shit. Um, Chris Penn, Sean Penn's fat brother, R.I.P. No, he's great. I love Chris Penn. Um, Julianne Moore, Matthew Modine. Fuck. Like, cranking it it, out. The hits just keep on coming. And each performance, um, the woman, the love interest from Footloose is the cellist. Um, man. It's uh, it's really something. It's this crazy cat. Jennifer Jason Lee is a phone sex operator. Um, so it's all I, these people. What's up? I love that entire bit where she's just like doing like motherly. Oh, like, we'll get into it. I could I could talk about just that, just her and Chris Penn for an hour and a half. Um, <laughs> so what this movie is, if some people might, if they've Nick, have you seen Magnolia? Paul Thomas Anderson. I have heard about it via um, Paul F. Tompkins' stand-up acts, but I have never actually seen it. It's wonderful, and it's basically, he just kind of stole his whole shtick from Robert Altman in general, and maybe from this movie in particular. Um, Altman is known for his ensemble cast, his multiple um, streams of dialogue in any given scene, and this sort of satirical lens less about plot and more about character uh what this movie does is it at sometimes it's just really some like mundane types of um 
plot points like, oh, one couple is having another couple over for dinner and three friends go on a fishing trip and this woman's a clown and this guy's a cop and here's uh you know a woman with a kid nick yeah um they're in the scene where she is getting her clown makeup on and her husband is going fishing and he's like packing up this stuff but you can't quite tell what it was i was really hoping that he would have also have like a ridiculous job like he was like a stunt man or like a professional tightrope walker like but a, i would like a special effects makeup artist maybe oh uh, well maybe i don't know that might already be in this movie that is a still on drugs robert downey jr <laughs> yeah who's so good who's so comfortable in his role as like uh a very fun personable creep yeah he's sleazy but like if he doesn't say much you'd be friends with him yeah he this this movie has a lot we're gonna get into it some of it's pretty fucked up some fucked up stuff happens in this movie and it can be difficult it's a movie that leaves you thinking because it's all these different characters and all these different scenarios and it doesn't quite hand you hey here's what you might want to think about this particular person and so you weigh their their actions against the actions of others against the the other characters in their scene or that they do not directly interact with and it's mainly these different families a lot of couples um, and sort of how their stories intertwine in Los Angeles. And the framing is interesting. It starts with the uh, medfly infestation. Yes. And the city of Los Angeles is spraying chemicals from helicopters to um, kill these medflies, which I did some research. Apparently it was a very real thing that occurred in the 80s when I was a, a wee tot in the city of angels. I do not particularly recall one the most interesting one no is like these would the government would have to put like dump millions of dollars into these like the helicopters and stuff to stop the medfly infestations because they would just ravage crops not to interrupt but when you describe yourself as a child in the city of los angeles my mind immediately went to like the stickball page boy hat um white feeder wearing children from who framed roger rabbit who are on the back of the car and they're just like beatniks and they smoke and the detective hops on and he smokes with them and Nick, i'm old i'm not that old well I'm, you never know it was not a new zine let's cut off your leg and count the rings i did I didn't used to spend my time, you know, flipping a nickel. Yeah, you know, just flipping it. Waiting just flipping for a nickel. Nah, I was more of a, a stick and hoop kind of kid. <laughs> How old are you? <laughs> None of anyone's business here. We'll leave the mystery. Um, I, well, I was a wee tot in Los Angeles in uh, 1993, so. Nice. When, but, or no, I wasn't, that was false. In 1989, when the medflies were actually there. So in 1989, net, get this, there's a total divergence. The medflies would show up every like year or two, and some years it'd be worse than others. Like if someone accidentally transported them from the Mediterranean, um, and it would be this big, nasty pest. And then in 1989, they, the scientists, there was like a bad one. It was a bad year for the med, the medflies hit hard. And the scientists were like looking at the medflies. They're like, this is weird. We can't find any evidence of the larval 
medflies. There's no sign that medflies were born here. They are just the grown medflies are here. And then it turned out that was it was in fact a bioterrorist group called the Breeders, which I assume is where the band got their name, um, that said, hey, this is payback for you guys spraying all those awful toxic chemicals in the air. Now we're just, we just dumped a shitload of medflies here. And that appears to be exactly what happened. And is there a movie about that? <laughs> there is, I wanna see it, right? There's a shitty Jesse Eisenberg movie about eco-terrorism. Eh. It's a lot about like, oh, you wanna do good and save the environment, but then you blow up a dam. Are you really any better than those evil corporations? Jesse seems like the kind of person that would be in real life an eco-terrorist and nobody would stop him because they just wouldn't want to talk to him. Yeah, I'm glad he's faded completely. Yeah, I mean, hey, he was in Zombieland too. It's pretty big. Yeah, bump. that's kind of what I'm getting at. That was a you nice Did anyone see Zombieland 2? <laughs> oh, was I it simply just a, a shameless rehashing of what in retrospect was only a pretty good film? Oh yeah, no, it was pretty much the same script, just like snipped a few plot points added in, a few characters. Yeah. It was Did like zombie Bill Murray come back? Uh, Don't put Um, actors as themselves. At the the very end, there is a scene that shows like a prequel of the original one and it's like the day the zombies broke out and it's Bill Murray at a press junket for Garfield 3. And it's actually really funny. Because Al Roker is the first infected one, like actual Al Roker, and then like Bill Murray kills him. And it just shows Bill Murray like experiencing like near the beginning, like the patient zero moment of that outbreak. Okay. I could have just seen that short and not the entire movie and I would have been so much happier. But we're not going to talk about that movie until I make you watch it next month for my birthday. So back to the short Um, Speaking of television personalities playing themselves in movies, Yes. We have one in this, which is which I loved to see. A young, relatively young Alex Trebek. Um, yes. As a, a patron of the arts, he is seeing a jazz performance. I love when Alex Trebek is in like 80s and 90s movies. Mm-hmm. And I loved, it's interesting to see him not, you know, behind the podium or yeah. coming up with his cards in hand to talk to the, yeah. <laughs> the college students. Before he was in movies, I never knew he had legs. <laughs> Nick, he comes out after the first commercial break. He, he walks in front of the podium. That's TV magic. Tax. You know, Disney made Lincoln look alive. Just saying. Those an- audio animatronics. Okay. Um, Nick, what, what was this movie about? Because I do, I genuinely love, love, love this movie. And I think it's about a lot. And I want to hear what you have to say about the big picture, what is this movie about? Huh. What is this movie? Did you think I wasn't going to ask you about this film? No, I should have known this was coming. (laughs) I mean, uh, like, I think I admired the fact that it takes place entirely in Los Angeles and is completely devoid of the idea of fame, kind of. Like, outside of... There are no... Like, Alex Trebek is the one. He's the most famous person, and, like, they don't really ever talk about anything else. Like, even um, Tom Waits is a limo driver, but he's just driving, like, a doctor. 
there's a woman who's in an orchestra, but it's like small beans. It's like every, nobody is that important, which I like because, you know, there's a lot of not important people in LA. Right. Julianne Moore is some sort of artist, but not like a larger than life artist. And he, like the old um, lounge singer lady, like, you know, she's washed up. Like everybody yes. is either, wa- like nobody is as famous as they ever were or yes. something like that. I, I don't know. I feel like it's about like just bad relationships kind of. Cause like every no, there's not a single positive relationship really, and it's like a lot of different ones. Like some are romantic, some are like father son, some are. I think like, there are some positive relationships. Well, yeah, I, I challenge that. There were just a lot of. I guess it's about relationships, and like how some are negative, some are positive, some could be a mix of both, some could be mostly negative, but like in the end, they just work out positive because people make things work. Yeah, something like that. I agree, yeah, I think, um, and it's it's these almost mundane, these small snippets of just regular life that taken like individually just feel like they're just simple, don't mean much. Like a couple that likes drugs watches their neighbor's house and feeds their fish while they're gone. Yeah. Um, okay, right, like that's, that's uh, your plot. Like, and, but taken together, it does this fantastic job of building tension in yeah. those very, in those kinds of moments where, and that's what I love is that it shines this light of like, almost like the deadly seriousness of these very normal everyday occurrences. Um, it's, I think uh, go for it. I feel a lot in like consequences if that makes sense. Like everything you do affects other people. And that is especially shown because almost everyone in this movie is interwoven with everyone else. And like, there are things you see that like, it'll like when um, um, uh, 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 Tom Waits, wife hits the boy with the car. Like that is a thing that echoes like kind of in a bell curve throughout the rest of the film and like affects everybody in some way or another, whether it is the neighbors of the boy who was like the old washed up singer and the cellist and like everybody kind of knows about it. It's true. But yeah, that, if there's any one, like, action and inciting incident, right, it seems to be that. Yeah. Um, that Lily Tomlin, who is a waitress at a diner, um, hits uh, a young boy with her car, but she, he seems, he's, like, running to school, he's got his backpack on, and he seems kind of fine. He seems, he's like, okay, and she's like, oh my god, like, I could have really hurt you, let me, let me walk you home. And he's like, no, my parents say I shouldn't like talk to strangers he goes home and then he's super tired and it's Andy McDowell's kid and they bring the kid to the hospital and it's sort of this throughout most of the movie this child is basically unconscious in the hospital and yeah all the the different characters like their pool cleaner is a very significant character in his own right that is true. He has his own story with a wife who does phone sex to help pay the bills. It's true. Yep. Chris Penn and Jennifer Jason Lane. Would you would you think about her in particular as a character? Um Huh. I feel like she was one of the people that was definitely in an unhappy relationship, but like they just made it work because, you know, they had like two kids at that point. They were financially dependent on one another. I feel like him more than her, 
Like, I feel like she was making money and he wasn't as much. Yeah, and, definitely know. has those vibes. Yeah, um, and like, you know, what happens at the end kind of attests to the fact that they weren't happy. Yeah, so let's let's get into that. Because I don't know, I don't know that I'd say she wasn't happy. Well, and, I don't But know. maybe that's my own theory. Yeah. But I want to I pitch this one. Um, I think what I see, if there's any one, like, particular theme beyond, like, kind of the, the large universal connections, relationships, coincidences, consequences, sort of that kind of interweave throughout all these disparate stories, um, fragile male fear of being emasculated. There is this deep fragility to so many men in this, and they're all straight men. Yeah. I thought it was interesting. It kind of, in retrospect, it was like, it would be really cool to see how a queer relationship would exist in this film. Um, and it might not have been the time, or maybe Robert Altman didn't give a shit, or maybe Raymond Carver, the stories are based on, I don't know. It would be interesting. All these, all these relationships are heterosexual and white. Um, so that's sort of the focus, but it does feel like it's offering some more universal sentiment. And one is these fragile, fragile male egos. Yeah. And I, think- I thought it was interesting. The, do you know who the first man in this movie who is who other men feel threatened by who other men become just uncomfortable it's alex trebek isn't it? it's alex trebek it's exactly right it's the wives spot this the host of jeopardy hardly a casanova i don't um, know he's a very but, handsome yeah handsome canadian and and the husbands are like they feel weak. They feel jealous that like these, their women see this, um, this man who like is obviously of no consequence to them. And part of this movie is about these deep visceral fears that these men have and none more poignantly than Chris Penn. And Chris Penn's wife, um, Jennifer Jason Lee, is a phone sex operator and a caretaker to the family and rearing the children. And there are these scenes where she's talking on the phone about like stroking a dude's cock or whatever. And Chris Penn, you can see like he's standing at the door, he just got home from work and she's doing this and he like has this weak sort of disgust and his own worthlessness. He's, he's instantly emasculated. But the irony is, like, she's, as you said, paying the bills. She is literally changing her baby's diaper. She, he asks her at one point, he's like, do you ever, like, you know, like, do you ever get off doing this or something? Like, are you into it? I forget exactly what he says, but, like, and she's, like, like, rolls her eyes at the absurdity of the question that this is clearly for her nothing more than a job. She is not emotionally or sexually invested in these people. She is doing it simply as a means to an end to support her children and her husband. And that is like any outside perspective is so abundantly clear. But Chris Penn does not see that. He is, he feels, he just feels like a worthless small dicked cuck throughout (laughs) this. 
right? And the, the cuckolding, we get almost the classic cuckold trope when like the one black man in this movie offers his wife $200 to blow him in the back of the jazz club. And she, again, like, because she appears to be just like a wife who at least somewhat cares about her husband. She doesn't feel, she doesn't show signs of like not, of her personally not liking him or caring about him or wanting to be a good wife to him at all at any point. Um, but it's those fears, just the fact that she got propositioned in that way makes Chris Penn feel um, very, very emasculated. And that sort of comes to a head. Um, <laughs> a head. How, anyway. what, what, how does, what's the climax of that, uh, that thread, Nicholas? Well, I was cooking for the last few minutes of this movie. I had to catch the last few today because it's a very long movie and I wanted to get some good sleep last night. So I know that he beats her to death with a rock and then an avalanche kills him. Who does he beat to death with a rock? His wife. No. Oh, okay. Oh, wow. I was cooking. I missed like apparently the two seconds that I needed. I was chopping onions anyway. Please no, so, so his family and Robert Downey Jr. Yes. and his partner, who is the daughter of Lily Tomlin, who is abused by Tom Waits, probably. Um, yeah. he, uh, they're all having a picnic in Griffith Park. And these two young, maybe like high school girls. I saw that comment, yes. Right, they come in on their bikes and... Robert Downey Jr. is sort of like, you know, he's got these Tomcat vibes, but sort of these fun Tomcat vibes. Interesting. Yeah. Um, except for like his little spurts of violence, but. Yeah, like when he's he's doing like the fake um, FX shot, shots with the woman at one point in the film, and he's like, he, he goes in and like fake hits, hits her, and then he's like, ooh, that got me excited. That was weird. And he like, yeah, that was weird. Like stream of consciousness. And I'm like, ooh. Yeah, he has uh, him and his girlfriend, partner, wife, I don't know, um, have this. Uh, he puts makeup on her to make her look like she's been beaten, and he takes like sexy abuse photos for, you know, he's probably selling them to some strange group of people but nevertheless it feels like one of the more loving supportive relationships and it's like it's not the worst one. Oh, it's it's <laughs> not even close in the top five i don't know yeah it's there. Um, but so he and chris penn sneak off at this picnic to like basically go chase down these two young women mm-hmm. and robert downey jr is like being slick as he so often is what a charmer and he, you know, he says the right things. He's like, they offer them beers. And then our DJ sort of splits them up. He takes one girl to show, show her the Bat Caves, where they filmed the intro to the, the original Batman television show. Mm-hmm. And then, like, just as that, as they split off, and it's Chris Penn, who's, like, slowly just, you've seen him just, like, Oh, come to his breaking point, basically, in terms of this, just all this massive, deep sexual insecurity kind of stuff. And he just bashes this high school girl's head in with a rock. Um, and then right then an earthquake happens and that uh, presumably they, he gets away with that. I don't know, because her friend is witness to this, so who knows. 
um, but that she is presumed to have been killed by the earthquake, according to the news report at the end of the film. And God. it's fucked. I mean, yeah, no, that it's it's unhappy. Like, um, it reminds me a lot of a movie which stars one of the women from this film, uh, three billboards outside of something in Missouri. Missouri. Yeah. Like that movie, I I watched it and it's like, you just are so mad at the end and there's no resolution really. Mm -hmm. That happened and you know, justice probably won't be had and you just kind of have to live with that, which is not how most movies end. And it's upsetting, but you know, it sticks with you. It does. Yeah. And that this, that this wasn't his wife or some other character that we got a glimpse of. We know nothing about this girl. Yeah. Like, I, you know, she was just yeah. with her like, friend on a bike ride through the park. Um, and that she, you know, just gets introduced into this story only to get killed by a man at his breaking point um, is deeply sad. And it is sort of the, the fate and consequence um, aspect of this film. And like, presumably his relationship probably ended after that, I would hope. I would hope. (laughs) And it's funny, I read, I read some reviews about this and one was from the Washington Post that was like, this movie sucks. It was like a bad (laughs) review from 1993. (laughs) And it was about how it was sexist, which like, there you couldn't, you can have that conversation. There's a lot, a fair amount of nudity and it's all female nudity that, um, yeah, you, you certainly that's a conversation worth having, I think. But this, in this review, it said like, you know, there are some characters we, we care about, like, but Jennifer, um, Jennifer Jason Lewis is not one of them. Like, she's a phone sex operator. And it was this reviewer, like, bashing, Jesus. Like, saying that, like, that's why I don't give a shit about her because she's a phone sex operator while at the same time, calling this film sexist, which I think was a reminder. It is wonderful how many strides we've made in terms of sexism since 1993. And I think, you know, it was maybe only even being addressed in some ways in in media and film in these more art house films, right? I assume this was a somewhat large film, but it wasn't, um, you know, it wasn't a blockbuster hit or anything like that. Certainly Altman was a big name, but it is a sort of experimental artistic film. And then to see like a mainstream Washington Post movie reviewer say that, like, fuck yourself. And I thought she was one of the best characters and she did nothing wrong and she supported her kids and her husband. Um, And that was rad. And I hope hope she left his murderous ass immediately after this. I, yeah, Um, let's talk about another shitty man who I adored. Which one? Uh, (laughs) Which one? We've got, you, whichever one you want. Uh, Well, I guess, I guess Tim Robbins is next. That's what I gotta go with. (laughs) The most cartoonishly evil man in this film. I've I've been staying at home because of the whole pandemic, just because it's safer in the woods. I can explore a little more. It's more space. Anyway, um... And I've been watching some Lifetime movies with my mother, and a lot of them are about, like, really generic true crime, like, I'm dating a narcissist and he's ruining my life, and, like, home invasions and stuff. And I've just heard so much, like, 
ripped out of a straight crime textbook narcissism stuff that like I just five minutes in I was like wow Tim Robbins is just an incredible narcissist who's ruining his wife's life and yeah that is what he is he's a terrible man and I don't like him he, he stole is... a dog he stole a family's dog and he's a police officer so he could just get away with lying pretty much it's crazy he did he... Some bad things and so yeah so he he has his wife and his kids who he does not give a fuck about anymore. Oh, no. It's just the entire time he is like vehemently upset and yelling anytime he's home, basically. Yes, he is blatantly cheating. He's out, out at all hours, out for nights at a time and like clearly lying about his whereabouts. And he's, he's off, you know, sleeping with Francis McDormand, um, trying to, <laughs> trying to get get the clown's number when he pulls her over abusing his cop powers but the most um cartoonishly evil as you alluded to so his wife and kids he's got these three kids and it you just get the feeling they annoy the fuck out of him like he has no love for them and they've got this yippy little dog and it's these little rugrats running around screaming with their yippy little dog and he just is done he's just like i Fuck all you people. Nick? Just rewatched It's a Wonderful Life the other night because I really enjoy that movie. And, like, in that movie, George Bailey, like, he gets cranked up as it goes on. And, like, by the end of it, he's at, like, by, like, the middle of it when he, like, yells at his kids and he's, like, talking to his wife. He's like, why we gotta have all these kids? That's very good. Thank you. I can do a much better one, but we won't do that now. Um, He's at, like, maybe an 8 out of 10. And, like, Tim Robbins starts at, like, an 8 out of 10 of just being mad. Like, I'm surprised he doesn't just yell at some point, like, why do we gotta have all these kids? And, like, just (laughs) kick the dog and stuff. And so what he does... <laughs> he takes the family dog and he gets on his, his chopper, his cop bike, and he goes off to some neighborhood and just <laughs> drops the dog off. <laughs> and he goes, and he says, he's like, yep, go on, get out of here. Like, we, <laughs> we don't want you anymore. <laughs> Sorry, Susie, we don't want you anymore. And then, so you're like, oh my god, this piece of shit. Did he really just, like, really drop this dog off somewhere that was his family's dog? And then they're like, the kids are all crying because their dog's missing. And then it's, like, a couple scenes of that throughout the three hours. And then, like, I guess now he's just fed up with the fact that his kids have been bitching about their missing dog for so long. So he goes back to that neighborhood and sees like another group of kids now embracing this dog they found and he just walks in and takes it so he steals this dog from two different groups of children he is like a simpsons character of a villain like it is ridiculous (laughs) how silly this man is while doing such terrible things. He's an absolute monster. (laughs) He's the most, yeah, from the jump, you're like, wow, this guy's a piece of shit. He's like, when they're spraying the backyards, he like is kicking the dog out the back door and he's like, (laughs) his wife is yelling about getting cancer and he's just like, ah, it's a dog, it'll be fine. (laughs) Wants the dog to get helicopter cancer. (laughs) Man. Um, Another piece of shit, man, I'd love to discuss. One that holds a much bigger place in my heart in this film. 
<laughs> Tim Robbins, and that would be Mr. Jack Lemon. Ah, uh, Jack Lemon. I I've been listening to um Casey Kasem lately because um they air like the old countdowns on Sirius Radio. Like they'll do like seventies on seven. Like they'll just air like that week's entire Casey Kasem broadcast. And it reminded me of, like, that great old transatlantic voice that nobody uses anymore and how Jack Lemmon has it just because that he grew up in that era. Like he's, he's that old. Yeah. Hey, he's Jack Lemmon, so he sounds like that mm. kind of old, ah, old man on the TV kind of thing. It's great. I love it. Exactly. He's, he's good it's so good. And I forgot how fucking – he really, he's got one scene, right? He's in it for a couple scenes, but really there's, like, one one monologue, basically – that it's like, oh, right, this is what makes him Jack fucking Lemon. And, like, it was, like, it's about halfway through before he even shows up. Yeah. Like, briefly as he does in the first few scenes he's in. And I was, like, I was halfway through and I paused and I was, like, wait a minute, where's Jack Lemon? Did I miss him? Where is he? And, man, love him. Jack Lemon. Uh, Nick, Nick took a break from flipping his burgers and said, oh, wait, haven't hey, seen old Jack uh, Lemon yet. Um, so can you tell us a little bit about his character and and this uh, uh, scene of his? Yeah, well, he shows up and you realize that he is the father to the newscaster and the grandfather to the child that got hit with the car. And he's like, he shows up and he's just kind of asking around and talking to people and like, just like doing like the old man who doesn't talk to many outside people kind of thing where he'll like latch on to other conversations and like, oh, how's your son? You're here too. And then eventually, Where are they? they're in the hospital. And then eventually, um, Jack Lemon finds his son, the newscaster, and like they talk a little, and then he kind of goes away. And then through conversations, you realize that like he's been estranged for years. Like he wasn't even at the wedding, their wedding, which was presumably at least a decade ago. And then eventually, they, the father and Jack Lemon, sit down and they have this long talk about how Jack Lemon had an affair with his wife's sister. And he he's, like, kind of not a great guy, but, like, he's framing it to seem like she, like, seduced him. And, like, she, he even said... beautiful, beautiful he's thing. Like, he's like, oh, it, she... He said that she said, oh, my sister would do the same thing in this situation. Like, it was... she. He made tried to make it sound like it was as okay as possible. And then he basically said, like, he, the son, got into an accident or something and they had to go to the hospital and the wife walked in on them when he was, she was coming to say like, hey, we need to go, kid's sick. And then basically says like, after that, your wife, your mom said I needed to get out of there and I just never came back. And that's pretty much the entire thing. Yeah. And it's, I want to, I want to just like reiterate some of that because given the context in this film, it is incredible that so we learn in this scene that Jack Lemon is estranged from his son ever since this incident when his son was a child, where his son had some horrible accident, had to go to the hospital. And while that was occurring, Jack Lemon goes to his wife's sister's house, presumably under the guise of like doing, working on her fridge or something, right? Some like, yeah you know errandy type thing um and she apparently seduces him and he details this entire story top to bottom to his son who is now a grown man while that his son's son 
is in the hospital and and is unconscious and possibly dying in a very blatant parallel to his son having been in the hospital during this traumatic time where his dad disappeared after banging his wife's sister. May I add that this entire time he is dressed as like an old, like affluent Florida man. Like he's dressed like the old man from some like it hot, like in a weird like 360 where he's become him now. And it's fantastic. (laughs) White shirt, little straw hat. And so he feels it is appropriate to like reacquaint with his son by sharing the story, every single beat of this story entirely through the lens that he never did anything wrong and he couldn't help it and it wasn't his fault it was the woman's fault and never get we don't really get his son's like reaction to but you got to assume it's like okay now go back to being the fuck out of my life forever i mean yeah like dealing with so much like this story i think just means nothing to him at this point because his dad's been gone so long and also he's just dealing with such an emotional thing that like you know it's whatever and you get the feeling that maybe this is what jack lemon needs that he's been harboring this guilt or finally like but even so can't admit any blame when obviously this father ought to hold a fuckload of blame in this situation and he can harbor none, but feels he needs to try to do something in this wildly ineffectual, horrible way, really. It's definitely for him, like. And it's definitely, meanwhile, his son probably, probably isn't even hearing the words at this point because he's afraid his son's going to die. Which leads to a choice I did not think this movie was going to make, right? One, Kids don't usually die in movies. Two, if they do, it usually happens right away. Um, They usually, right, if you get the kid up, the kid's on life support, the kid's unconscious, the kid, you know what's coming next. (gasps) The kid's okay. Nope. Right? We get the whole movie of little Casey is in the hospital. And then we're just told that he didn't make it. Yeah, and like he wakes up for a second. And, like, he's blinking, and then he, like, crashes and dies. And it's just, like, it's such, like, a... You get so much hope there for, like, a second, just right back down. Yeah, and it's it's sort of heartbreaking, and it it is this jarring turn, because it's, like, you don't don't think it's going to happen. And you saw the car accident. It didn't seem that bad. And, like, and the movie won't kill the kid, you know? He's, like, a good young boy who likes baseball. They wouldn't. Um, And they do, because... Sometimes that happens, and it's horrible. Uh, but there is this this recurring theme of just this is what happens. This is what happens. All right, Nick. Let's do a little little thought experiment. All right. Yeah, yeah. Go ahead. You and your buds. You and your buds. You've been planning this trip for a while. Yeah. Right. Where, where are we going? Are we chasing you're, go, you're going fishing. You're, you're going on a four-hour drive out to, out to the river where ooh, you know those fish are, are really going to be jumping. You haven't, you haven't fished like this in years with the buds, right? It's your weekend. You're, you're going to camp. You got your beers. You got your fishing rods. You're ready. Um, 
uh, you know, before you, before you leave town, you go to the diner and you like sort of sexually harass the, the waitress. You make her bend over to get butter for you. Uh, you know, just, to, just getting the, getting the good spirit of dudes being dudes, getting ready for this fishing trip. You, yeah. you're, you're away from the wife, that clown bitch. Uh, <laughs> really, really painting the picture, setting the mood, you know, and you go fishing. My wife is a very nice lady. Just and while, while, so you get there, you're, you're setting up shop and you happen to be fishing with Huey Lewis and Huey Lewis decides uh-huh. to take a leak, um, and discovers a dead naked young woman's corpse in the river that you're planning on fishing in. What is it with Huey Lewis and dead young women? I, I, I'm, I don't know the other dead young women. American really. Psycho. American Psycho, yes. And I, I was trying to think of a dead young woman in the Back to the Future film, but I don't think <laughs> of um, So you do that, and now you have a choice, right? You can leave and call the cops, right? It's 1993. You don't have a cell phone. You can leave. You can go back home. You can basically say, well, this fun weekend I planned on, we know we're going to report this to the police because there's a dead body here. Or you can say, hey, let's worry about this after our fishing weekend. And because you don't want the corpse to float away, because then you'd feel bad right you do want to report this so then is to make sure it doesn't float away you say well we've got all these fishing line let's just tie it up and like we tie it to a branch you know on the the side of the river here um and then report it after a couple of days of fishing with your boys like is is that wrong um yeah (laughs) i could not imagine the kind of like group mentality you would have to be in for that to actually happen. Like, yeah. I mean, I mean, even like the only like way I could see it happening is like if one person was like, okay, we got to do something. And the others like stayed to fish, but like just like pretty much stayed to watch the body, but fished because they were there anyway. Like, I think that would be okay because they're there anyway. What are they going to do? They're going to fish. But like, just like doing it. Sure. Like, if they called it in. Yeah. So like two of them, one of them goes back, the other two stay there fishing, so they can keep an eye on the spot. And like once the police yeah, show that up, would have say, been right. perfectly okay, I think. And like how yeah. far could they realistically have been from the phone? Like there had to be one within at least like half an hour, whether it was like a camping station or like just sure. some backwards gas. Like, yeah, this was at a time when there were phones on the side of the highway every few miles. It's just um, it's like so unbelievable, but like you know stuff like that has happened. Yeah. Um, so, yo, Joe Dirt's dad's wife also takes your stance on this, and she is displeased, to oh, say the least. incredibly displeased, as she should be. <laughs> Joe Dirt's dad, did I get that right? I think so. I think that's him. Yeah, he's one of those stern, stern man character actors. <laughs> um, and... Okay, would it also be fucked up to snap a couple pics of this naked woman and maybe joke about how she seems kind of hot. It's hard to really tell because she's in the water. Um, but she's young and, you know, you have your camera, you're in the scenery, you brought your camera to take pictures on, you know, the hiking and, and the fishing and such. Snap a couple pics of this corpse. That's, there. this brings up another point in this film that like, all of the nudity is 
very like aesthetically beautiful. Like her body floating in the water is just very like reminiscent of like oil paintings of Ophelia from like Shakespeare and like that like dreamy like ivory skinned person under the water and like fabric floating around. But like, you know, she was raped and killed and dumped there. So it's like that juxtaposition of beauty yeah. with violence. And same thing with um later on, not gonna remember her actual name, but the woman was arguing about having kissed and slept with somebody. Julianne Moore. And, okay, and she's like not wearing pants and she's just like very like, her skin is just very well lit and like, it's just like a weird nudity paired with like her defending herself and telling the story of basically cheating on her husband. Yes, that that is such a, an interesting scene. And the nudity, that was one in the Washington Post reviewer, you know, did not like the, and said like, and Julianne Moore, you know, is naked from the waist down for this important scene. And like the audience couldn't possibly listen to her in such a, it's like, I heard every word she said and like, like tried to weigh this choice. Why, why is, and that was interesting because it was one beautiful nudity, I think, as you might say, in that like Julianne Moore in 1993 is just like a gorgeous woman. Um, And she's like dressed up with her soft white skin and she's in like a nice, you know, nicely talked about her her sort of fancy attire. Uh, But she spills some wine on her, her, the leg piece of this uh, wardrobe. Those are usually called pants, but. <laughs> I don't know, but were they pants? I don't know. They were um, very. So cool. she removes them and is washing them in the sink. So she's standing there with her top, but no bottom, which is like. She's Winnie the Pooh in it. She's Winnie the Pooh in it um, while like are explaining to her husband about that one time that he's been jealous of for years. Yes, she did fuck this guy when they went out to get beers at this party. And it's sort of this, all all of the pieces. That's the one where I'm like, is she good? Is he good? Is she bad? Like, should, did she fuck up? Like it's, there is no answer. And it's sort of like, these are just people who have done this and it, it almost isn't offering them reality. But to add that nudity that like, is on the one hand, the sort of conventionally beautiful nudity and sexual nudity, but on the other hand, like isn't at all in the context of this. Yeah. Um, and it's almost, she almost, she does this great job of making, making her husband feel like he's the fool for having like let this stuff just sit in his brain for three years wondering if she fucked this guy when she tells him that yes she did fuck this guy i loved that scene (laughs) yeah no it really was like so intense like like i could imagine that being in like a stage play and just like being like the moment that people would like dead silence you could hear a pin drop like yeah I don't know, there's a lot of times, I think, like, I would never agree with the reporter. Like, I wouldn't say this movie is sexist. I would say sexism exists in it just through the stories it tells. But, like, Mm -hmm. I don't think the way they use nudity is in any way approaching sexism. I think it's beautiful and haunting and, like, it just depicts the stories in realistic ways. It makes you think about things deeper than, like, you know, tits in an 80s movie would. Yeah, and it's almost like one of, like it's saying, so what, right? Like Chris Penn has these deep fears that his wife, that, you know, 
he, he can't pleasure his wife enough and, and she gets off to these guys on the phone and he's dead wrong and Matthew Modine is he has these deep fears that his wife cheated on him and it turns out he's right but the question is almost the same and it's so what it's like yeah. what are you gonna do with that and that's sort of what Julianne Moore like Julianne Moore doesn't deny her love for her husband and she asserts in describing in detail what happened that like it meant nothing and you're in like it does it matter that she did like and it's like yeah that's obviously an affront and a breach of trust and for some people would say you know they'd end a relationship right there knowing that and i understand that but it's also like is it does get at the sort of possession and control that i think comes with men's ideas of monogamous relationships and we see that and it's most warped with Chris Penn um but even with Matthew Modine where he's jealous of Alex fucking Trebek <laughs> I think it's like a lot of this movie deals with like different couples and different like pairings thresholds for different things too like what they're willing to deal with like when that whole like pantsless thing happened. He just like said like, we have company coming. We're going to put this aside. We'll deal with it later. And he was like, he, you could tell he was steamed, but like, you know. Oh yeah, he throws in these jabs during this dinner with this other couple. And then like, you know, on the other hand, um, the other, the phone sex husband, you know, he wound up killing a woman just out of sheer like building up and all this stuff right. affecting it. She wasn't even like physically doing anything. She was just on the phone with people. Right. So it just deals with doing yeah. a job. Yeah. And as she points out, she got to work from home in 1993. That was not common. And she says about raising the kids, which she's literally doing while she's working, while he's just like reaching across her to get a roach out of the ashtray. Um, to yeah. his credit, he's working during the movie too. He is the pool. Yeah. Um, and he's ogling other naked women. So who else do you want to talk about? There's at least um, one I have in mind, but it's your you, film. You go. I mean, I was just going to say we should discuss Tom Waits a little. Yeah, Lily Tomlin and Tom Waits. Yes. Um, so the diner waitress and the drunk partner, husband, who, the, who knows. is Tom Waits. He basically yeah. plays a slightly caricaturized version of himself. Yeah. Ever so slightly. What do you got? What do you think of it? I don't know. I just like he is the first one of the first characters you see. Like he's doing his job. He's driving the doctor around, and like I don't know, he's not the best husband. But compared, like compared to everyone else in this film, like he didn't do bad. He, except for you know the um, there are several lines about how he probably abused her daughter. I forgot about those. When That's she was much younger, who is Robert Downey Jr.'s partner. Yes. Uh, okay. And so, and that, that does get at the complexity here because what Nick is describing, that's not to suggest that Nick is uh, in support of that behavior. But no. What Nick, what Nick is referring to is, despite what's clearly like a tumultuous relationship between Tom Waits and Lily Tomlin, and they both do quite a bit of drinking, especially him. He seems to be like a day drinking, show up drunk at, um, at the diner she works at and sort of get possessive of her when these other patrons are 
um, ogling her, or he also like, he's like, when he's into her at the end, when things are like good between them, he's like, says to the guy next to him, he's like, how'd you like to have a piece of ass like that? Um, who happens to be uh, that guy from Brooklyn Nine-Nine. Yeah. One of the two kind of dumb, boring characters. You know who I'm talking about. I actually I say Mulder you- and Scully, but... No, the other guy was in a movie I watched the other night, so... Ah, there we go. Uh, uh, it was an Ashton Kutcher, Bernie Mac film. Um, oh, uh, Guess Who? Yeah, it was some... Yeah, that's it, Guess Who. It was who. the, the, the oh, racial twist on Guess Who's Coming to Dinner? Yes, which is a very good movie. Much better than Guess Who, but they both have their merits. Sure. Um, so Tom Waits and Lily Tomlin, despite what is tumultuous and, like, they both clearly have issues, um, him especially, at least from what we see. And nevertheless, when this earthquake hits, they are in the sort of most loving embrace of their wearing, they're in her trailer where she lives, or maybe they both live, I don't know. Um, and they're wearing lays, they're drinking like tiki bar, fruity drinks, and they are dancing and kissing and laughing and smiling and just like loving each other's company in like this way that feels really pure and nice and sweet. And he's talking about how he's going to get them out of Downey and, you know, to a better life out of the trailer park. And no, no, he won't. Like, no, he won't. But that lie, that lie feels really nice to them. And it's probably the millionth time they've shared that right? Like, that's not new. And it's almost, it's like, despite the obvious flaws, and like, we only get, hear whispers of this fucked up behavior in the past, Lord knows what kind of awful shit they've been through together and from one another, that nevertheless, there is this, like, real comfort in their relationship at times. Yeah, like, I know people from my life that have maybe not identical relationships, but like that idea of like, you know, a couple that doesn't have it that well off and like they drink a lot and it's kind of like, you know, they find happiness in the moments that they can be happy. Mm -hmm. Where, you know, they'll fight and they'll they'll break up and stuff, but you know, it all works out just because they kind of need each other, despite the fact that they might not be the best person for each other. Right. It does feel that way. Well, anyway... (laughs) Yeah. And it does, it does seem to, right, this movie doesn't feel like it's making much in the way of moral judgments, but just to suggest that these people are all human. Yeah. Right? That they are, it's like, you can, you know, here are some flaws, here are some behaviors, here are some actions, and these are just people being people. So, any, anyone else you want to touch up on before we do other things? Yeah, we're like halfway there. Uh, <laughs> the, we got the jazz singer. Oh, um, yeah. I don't know. That almost that's that one's strange to me. What was? Do you know her name again? There's so many people I'm just losing. The character, to. the actress, the actress, the mom. Yes, I, the old. I don't. I don't okay. know who that I is. I think she's somebody. I just don't know who without looking and even in the list like i can't really pick out the name that doesn't look familiar right um she is 
I don't know. <laughs> she is Annie Ross. Annie Ross. Okay. Good for her. Yeah. Who doesn't... Whose first performance was in 1937. That makes sense. And her last was in 2012. Whoa. Yeah. Um, yeah, she doesn't... Not the most... Uh, storied career it seems shortcuts was probably about as big as it got for her but i assume she was you know she was a very good singer and so i wonder if perhaps her career was more as a singer she was in oh she was in basket case one two and three she was in throw mama from the train oh she was in throw mama from the train yeah very good movie love that and she yeah she was a, a jazz singer since the 50s and she plays this sort of washed up jazz singer who's it's almost this like caricature of it's a washed up jazz singer right and she is lamenting her her lost husband who overdosed on heroin and was a musician um and she herself is an alcoholic and is kind of yearning one she's like got this beautiful voice that she's sharing with all these people at these jazz clubs but at the same time is completely uh, out of touch with the fact that her daughter is depressed and suicidal and like craving like attention and craving something, just wants some emotional reaction out of her mother um, and doesn't get it. Uh, Yeah, what do you think about uh, that whole shebang? It was super, super upsetting. I mean, she like she had a steady job. Like she worked at like a bar. She would go there every night and work. And then her daughter was just like practicing cello, which at one point she almost like berates her for because she's like, like ah, you got that from your father. He was always chasing after those string player types and stuff like that. And like, yeah, it's just which and, like, is one fucked point, up reason to hate kids bloods all over the wall and like bounces and goes to her orchestra practice and like she's clearly cut and she's just trying to like get past and be like i'm fine i was doing a thing it's whatever then she's talking about how her mother's losing it which like she is a little but like she's definitely exaggerating the fact she's basically like playing it like her mother's like alzheimer's haze and like on the way out where her mother is really just drinking heavily and being as depressed but i think just coping with it better because she's from a different generation where like you're not allowed to feel that really yeah, I don't know about coping with it better, but yeah, they both, like, she's, they both are struggling with the same problem, yeah. right? Like, the mom is 100% not there for her daughter. Oh, yeah, no, she her is. Her daughter not needs her to be, um, which culminates in the daughter's suicide once, shortly after finding out that the neighbor boy, Casey, who was hit by the car, in fact, did not make it. She goes to tell her mom, who's practicing for her jazz show that night and her mom just like doesn't it's like in one ear and out the other like she's yeah, like, like oh that's a terrible shame like and she doesn't just... know who the boy is or give a shit she's like yeah that's a shame um and then that yeah that's the daughter who like wants this emotional connection with her mom and just never has it it, it drives her to suicide which is really fucking sad yeah, and, like, the way she's, like, playing cello in the garage with the car on, it's just, like, very, not symbolic, but, like, it's a very beautiful gesture for a thing that isn't that beautiful. Right. Um, and, yeah, she, uh, Lori Singer, was um, a cello prodigy from a very young age. 
and then starred in Footloose alongside Kevin Bacon. Good for her. Yeah. Um, okay, I, I remembered one other thing I want to talk about with this movie. My other, the funniest bit. Because um, this movie does have its laughs, right? If you don't laugh at Tim Robbins stealing the dog twice. Um, so Frances McDormand, who is the woman, one of presumably several women, for all we know, that Tim Robbins is having an affair with, uh, she has this husband in the middle of divorce who um, is a uh, angry, violent monster. And his name is Stormy Weathers. And while she is out, he, he feels very controlling. He's an awful, awful man. And he goes to her house where she lives with their son. And while she's not home, he takes a chainsaw to her couch and like uh, cuts, gets a pair of scissors and cuts up her clothes and is just slowly dismantling her entire home and everything in it. Um, the two quite funny parts of this are one that he had, he had come in earlier and like scolded her for not winding the grandfather clock that was like a family heirloom of his. And so before he destroys the house, he winds the clock. Uh, and then while he's in the middle of like, you know, ripping the stuffing out of the sofa and the place is just like an absolute mess, like completely ransacked top to bottom, um, a carpet cleaning salesman comes to the door. <laughs> it's like this moment of tension where you're like, you find, you realize it's a salesman, you're like, I think this psychopath might just like kill this man. I don't know. Like, how's this guy going to react to this scene? And he sort of comes in. He's like, you know, you want a free uh, carpet cleaning. And he comes in and like sees the mess. <laughs> he's just like, well, oh, uh, something, something happened here. I forget. <laughs> he's just like, oh, he's like, ah, no worries. I've seen it all. And like, they move stuff out of the way so he can clean the carpet while he's in the middle of destroying this home. Um, I've mentioned that I am quite the fan of John Denver before on this podcast. Um, John Denver actually did this with his first wife, um, Annie Martell. He, in the middle of divorce proceedings, he started the chainsaw one night in the middle of the night and just cut everything he owned in half. Because it was basically that thing, like, she wanted half of everything, so he was going to give it to her. Uh, that's, Great. That's um, not and for those who were wondering, like, no surprise here, Annie Martell, total babe. I mean, John Denver, such a nerd. He was only married twice, and both times were first. Sick. The first time was a significant amount of time. The second time wasn't just because he died, but still. Mm. When did when did he leave us? Um, he left us in. Oh, actually, sorry, I was wrong. He got divorced to his from his second wife before he died. He died in 1997. Okay, but he lives on um, through the soundtrack of the Pauly Shore film *Son-in-Law*. That is true. He also killed John F. Kennedy, but that's a discussion for another day. And thank God he is a country boy. God bless. Alrighty. Anyone else you want to touch up on this film or? I think we got like, I feel like we did a surprisingly coherent job of like taking that piece by piece. 
I mean, we we need a, a room with pictures and red yarn, but aside from yeah, that. That's a red yarn film. We didn't talk about the baker, who's Lyle Lovett, eh. who just goes from <laughs> being a creep to, like, having this nice emotional gesture, which is like, yeah. you never know what's going on with people. And also people who can be, like, awful pieces of shit also might be able to be good people. Like Tom Waits and Lyle Lovett. Yeah. Um, if you want another film in this vein that I absolutely love, have you ever seen the film Happiness? Happiness. Is Steve Martin in that? No. Okay, because there is another film sort of similar to this that I remember watching, like half watching a few years ago, and it has like Steve Martin and maybe like Whoopi Goldberg. Anyway, I have not seen Happiness either. Um, if you want this sort of... If you like this ensemble cast stuff, um, if you want one that like feels serious and poignant and, you know, has, when you piece it all together, it's really offering these lofty visions of humanity, then Magnolia. And if you want, if you prefer the satirical, absurd, deeply dark, but like hilarious, kind of aspect, happiness. Um, wonderful Philip Seymour Hoffman performance, um, all sorts of wonderful people. It is riotously funny and deeply, deeply, deeply fucked up. Uh, I one will definitely look into this. I like the looks of it just based on its Wikipedia. Yes, um, both of those films definitely um, owe quite a bit to this Robert Altman style and this film in particular. If you want another early 90s Altman that doesn't quite have the ensemble cast, but it's very good, um, The Player, starring Tim Robbins as a slightly more redeemable character. I watched the first half of that film several years ago in a film class, and I never finished it, but I've been wanting to for weeks. Oh, Nick, get on it! Because it's all, like, the whole film is done in, like, maybe eight shots. Oh, wow. That's, like, a, a thing it like because it's all like cranes and around the film lot and stuff right oh yeah it's these, these very cool shots um yeah that one's neat i a short shortcuts i liked more but like i think people are split on that there is one thing i would like to say about this movie that i thought about while watching okay um this is like a like a mid 90s um tim robbins film and another, like, 2000, mid-90s film is High Fidelity, also with Tim Robbins. And recently... Tim Robbins was in that? Yes, he is the ex-husband who the record collection belongs to. Uh-huh. Okay. Anyway, um, and also, wait, no. I think he might be dating somebody. I don't know, it's a whole thing, but he's a... <laughs> And High Fidelity this year was redone as a series, which, and it was redone to be a lot more, um, a lot more representative of queer culture and people of color and like modern Brooklyn, as opposed to the New York that that movie took place in. And I feel like this movie could definitely do that as well. Like, I feel like this movie could very easily be redone now and include a lot more stories and people of color and like that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And not not even that I would necessarily want like shortcuts the reimagining. Oh yeah. As much as I would love to see the similar type, the similar focus, the center weaving of stories 
to, I feel to incorporate this kind of diversity and thing. sorry what's up I was just this kind of ensemble thing just doesn't exist anymore really at least not on this scale like this movie has so many people in it and like so much intersection and so much story mm-hmm. it really does and it's it's amazing like that he pulled it off yeah. um so much so that this won a golden globe for the ensemble cast and all i can figure out was that the award was called a special award for the the entire cast of the film shortcuts i love that for them mm-hmm. <laughs> That is that is a cop out, but a great cop out. Absolutely. Oh gosh. Alrighty. Yeah, and like, it's almost a shame Dern wasn't in this. A young Dern. She did. She could have. She could have fit right in. You could have slated her in. Fuck Andy McDowell. Honestly. <laughs> I'll Who say it. Loser. Lily Taylor, Madeline Stowe, Julianne Moore, you can't get rid of Julianne Moore. I mean, yeah, she's got to stay, but... Ann Archer, come on. Weak, weak beans. Alrighty, so you want to talk about what we've been doing? I'll be honest, Nick, I have nothing. <laughs> nothing at all. Um, staring at the wall. I take my antidepressants. Um, most days I do some sort of work from home on my laptop. I fix a meal. I return to my room. I do more working. I make a lot of coffee. I drink a small pot of coffee every day. Um, it's chock full of nuts, dark roast. Ooh, I don't okay. love it, but it works. Um, I do feel like during this quarantine time, I've embodied a sort of stoic behavior, a Spartan, simple kind of um, existence. Um, every now and then punctuated with like a couple pizzas from Domino's. Nice. Yeah. Nice. And that's my life. Well. I twirl, nice. I have this watch that I twirl sometimes. <laughs> a stretch, it's one of these stretchy band watches. And it's just like a fun little knickknack. You're you're really living living on the hog very highly. Yep. <laughs> Top um, that, Nicholas. You've been reading anything fun? No. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm glad you're. You're no, I um. I've been telling myself I'd read the Decameron. Uh, yeah, I'll plug the Decameron. I've read it. It's a fun time for it. Um, the Decameron is a book from like the 1300s or 1400s by Giovanni Boccaccio. Um, he was from the UK. And <laughs> <laughs> he wrote this book shortly after um, the Black Plague and it's one of the all-time classics in terms of like starting like the, I don't know if that's early Renaissance or late, late, middle age, whatever. Um, it's about the black death has hit um, and five men and five women 
who live in like Florence or some Italian city, they they go out to the the woods to camp for 10 nights to like lay low and stay away from the plague, which mm-hmm. makes it relevant during this quarantine time. And they each tell one story a night. So there are 10 stories each night, 10 nights, 100 stories. That's what the Decameron means. And their body and their fun and their like, any religious character that comes up in the story is like a philandering piece of shit. Like they are like, it is, it is very much a satire against religion and against class and high status. And they're, you know, they're fun. They're, they're sexual stories. They're fun stories. And it's these kind of the same recurring themes. Oh yeah. It's very much like short. Um, and uh, it rules. And I keep, I've had it sitting on my desk like, yeah, I'm going to reread that book. And I haven't touched the damn thing, Nick. I'm sorry, man. I wear pants every day. I think I'm in a minority there. I've been wearing shorts, which I don't usually wear. Like, short shorts. How short are we talking, awesome. Nick? You strike me as a guy who, when he's going short shorts, well, I have little I have, to the imagination. I'll, I'll try to... You need to have, tilt like, that camera I'm wearing, down. I'm wearing jeans now, but like I have like upper mid thigh tattoos, and they're definitely peaking when I wear my exercise. Okay. This is this is what I certainly had in mind, and I think I hope the same for the audience. So uh, exercise shorts. I've been riding my bike a lot because I'm out here in the sticks. So there's a lot of nice back roads and like country landscapes and vistas that I can view while I chug away at like seven to ten miles. Almost every day. While you're out there, do you ever say to yourself, thank God I'm a country boy? Um, I carry a little speaker on my back and listen to music. Unfortunately, that song has not come up yet, although after I hang up, I'm going to be making a playlist for bike riding, so I will definitely add it. Okay. It's a nice up-tempo. Me and the listeners are going to hold you to that. Oh, I will. I will. This will happen. Okay. But uh, yeah, I've been doing that, been rehashing Guitar Hero. And getting back into what's your what's your kind of um you know skill level there pretty good i'm on the easy level now but i've definitely been getting like around 90 to 97 percent of the notes um i'm definitely i'm better than i was when i was little i think i'm more dexterous got bigger hands and i just what? need to keep my brain going <laughs> is uh is there one song you've been really like like re-enjoying or rediscovering or discovering for the first time with this uh, round of Guitar Hero? A little, I mean, it's like a lot of classic rock, but like every time I log on to play, I've, I've been like rationing it out so I don't blow through it all. I've been starting on uh, My Name is Jonas by Weezer as like a warm up. Yeah. But yeah, there's a lot of good songs. There's some Smashing Pumpkins, there's a uh, Santana, like a lot of things like when you're playing Guitar Hero, you like focus a lot more on a song than you normally would if you were just like in the car or whatever. So it's neat hearing music from a different standpoint. I agree. Yeah, I loved the drums on rock band in college. My roommate had a rock band and I would always play the drums. And it, for like that limited time where I did that, it gave me an ear for drums in music that like I never had before. Even on some of those songs where I'm like, oh, now I'm recognizing the drum beat. I know. That's interesting. But uh, yeah, aside from that, I've just been cooking and baking a little bit, been reading some, watching some stuff, watching The Sopranos finally, reading a nice um, short story book by Stephen King. Everything's eventual? Yes. I thought I saw you post that. Can we, can we like, can I look at the 
the stories and see which ones I remember? Or what do you yeah. what have you liked from that? I love uh, Stephen King's short stories. To our I'm listeners, a, if you've never done them, they're a great way to experience King. I this is my fifth one I'm going through, and I've realized there's so many more than I expected. So I'm going to be getting a few more once I finish this one up. But I'm only three in, but there's one about like a boy in the woods in like the nineteen teens and he meets the devil and he escapes and like the devil lies to him and stuff there's one about a guy who got bitten by a snake and he's like paralyzed but he's in the morgue because they think he's dead that one was really cool i like that <laughs> and that that one's a riff on an old um yeah uh, alfred hitchcock's alfred present. hitchcock presents and let's just spoil that one because it's so good um oh. in the in the original alfred hitchcock presents it's this guy's paralyzed but what we as the reader or we as the viewer knows that he can feel and is aware of like this awful pain. I forget the details, but like then it's revealed through his, I don't know, his finger twitching or something. No, it's a single tear. A single tear. That's it. And everyone's like, Oh, he's he's a a native American man. Yeah, Yeah. that's it. Um, So Stephen King basically has recreated that story, but the guy gets a bug. Oh yeah. And like, (laughs) a nurse busts in and says like stop stop he's alive and the woman who's doing the autopsy is like holding his boner and she (laughs) screams and lets it go and (laughs) find out that he dated after that but he could only get it hard when she was wearing a latex glove so they decided to break it off (laughs) (laughs) but yeah and the good the thing i like about this book is after each story he has a little prologue where he explains like where the story came from kind of right the, yeah this was more of i think a spread out anthology kind of collection yeah. and it's interesting i'm enjoying it so far i've been pretty much knocking out like a story a day and i have some other books going so i'm kind of all over but you know nice yeah we could shit if i if i realized that we could have done an episode just talking stephen king short stories i mean we could talk about it next week no, why not? We can talk about whatever we want. Pretty much. Um, you ever read the one with the, the guy quitting smoking? Is quitting that in the collection? What's that? Is that in this collection? No, no, it's an older one. Not sure. I've I've written. It's the newer ones I haven't done. It's like the oldest few I've done, and then I like missed a bunch. Done like, your your skeleton crew. I've done skeleton crew. I've done um, night. What's the night, night one? That's the one I loved. Wait, it's Night Shift, right? It's the one with the rats. Night Shift, yeah. There's also Nightmares and Dreamscapes, which is great. But Night Night Shift was my, that was like, and that was ninth grade max, favorite book in the world. When I was in high school, I did the one that's like the four seasons, and one of the stories is the Shawshank Redemption. Mm-hmm. And The Body, okay, Stand By Me. Yes. And Apt Pupil. Yes. Which was a weird movie with Sir Ian McKellen as, as an old Nazi. Oh, um, and then a fourth one that if it is a movie, it's probably one of the shitty Stephen King adaptations. Probably. Ooh, you know, I don't want to commit to this, but I might have my birthday movie be the Stephen King produced Shining. I've never seen it. I've also never seen it, but I've always wanted to, and I feel okay. like that's, we could definitely like that'd be it. fun. I've read it. I've seen the other one. Yeah, I will um, consider this. Yeah, I'd fuck with that. Hours <laughs> in my dark refrain. <laughs> so, anything else you wanna you wanna chat about? 
No, that's it. <laughs> um, yeah, no, I wish this this is a strange time, and I I feel like time is your Nicholas. Are your dreams weird? Are your dreams vivid? Um, talk to some people about quarantine dreams. I've been having some ones that like I'll wake up and like remember the whole thing, and it is very vivid, like very definitely like um <laughs> definitely like a large um ensemble cast of a dream like a lot sure. of people. yeah i've had some of those today specifically i had a dream about somebody i haven't talked to in a while and like they were involved in it and then i had waken up i woke up and they had sent me a message like clear like it wasn't like i woke up and half saw it and then it influenced the dream like it definitely i woke up fully and like my phone was across the room and i went and looked and they had messaged me and it was yeah i don't know dreams are there's a love story Oh, it's not a love story. We're I just, hear wedding bells. I'm not going to marry that person. Anyway. <laughs> but yeah, it's just a friend. We haven't talked in a while, but you know. That's nice. Because I know me and the listeners, as you said, you know, I had a dream about someone I hadn't talked to. We're all saying, call them, talk to them, reach out. And then they beat you to the punch. Oh, Max, you're the only man for me. Aw, thanks. Thanks, Ern. Bert. And Ernie. Um, <laughs> who I'm trying to think. I know Jack Lemon was famously a gay man, but I don't. I think he Jack was. Lemon was gay. I didn't Wait, know that. Oh, it might be the other guy from um, Grumpy Old uh, Man. Like it hot. Because I know the other guy was definitely gay. I thought Jack Lemon was, but actually, now that I'm thinking about it, I think I read that he famously wasn't. Huh. He was the only straight man in Hollywood. He was. And now he's he's left us. Yeah, okay. Did you ever see um you know, the one with Alec Baldwin Glenn Gary Glenn Ross? I have not, but I've always wanted to. Oh, I really Nick, that's a fun one. Ensemble cast, but in in talk about a stage play, it was a stage play. Um or at least it could be, and it was written by what's-his-name who does stage plays. Um, it's amazing. And it's Pacino, and Alec Baldwin, and Kevin Spacey, and Jack Lemon and Alan Alda. Hmm. I will, I, that's something I wanted to see, I just haven't gotten to it. I will add that to my it's list. It's great. That's a good, um, Jack Lemon plays Shelley Levine, AKA just a real pitiful piece of shit. <laughs> just been just a sad old man who just can't get by uh, he's sort of like gill from the simpsons but like makes you cry oh okay i was thinking Nick's of, having a breakthrough no i am i was thinking of tony curtis tony curtis yes he is the a name other- i know is the other leading man from Some Like It Hot, and he, I believe... Ooh, that's a very gay man. Yeah. It's a beautiful gay man. Where do I know him from? Um, well, you might know him, because he is... Um, uh, buh, buh, buh. Oh, what's her name? Um, he's Laurie Strode's dad, um, Jamie Lee Curtis. Oh. And Lee, Lehigh, Lee, Lie, whatever. Yeah, and, I didn't know that at all. And Jamie Lee Curtis. Wow. Okay. I had no idea she was um, I, their child. I didn't. How I don't know how I didn't know this. That's crazy. 
Can you believe that, guys? Wow. Oh, he was in, um, wait, no, I, oh, Spartacus. Yeah, that's how, that's where I recently, I recently listened to a podcast about Spartacus. And if you ever watch the documentary, um, The Celluloid Closet, which he is featured in quite heavily, he talks oh, about Oh, I've heard, I've never seen it. I think you told me about it. Oh, it's real, real good. Um, but he talks about how Spartacus was originally supposed to be a lot more queer than it was. But basically, the censors were like, you can't do that. You can't do that, right. But yeah. No, that's too bad. And he was in Shaft, the episode Hit Run. Oh, yeah. That's Clifford Grayson. And he played Fernand Mondego in the TV, 1975 TV movie, The Count of Monte Cristo. My word. My what favorite is, pieces of literature. Of gentlemen. <laughs> it's true. Alrighty, so for next week, are we going to go with our um, our last one? Yeah, we'll watch Goose. You'll watch Goose, the um, Laura Dern narrated short film, and I will watch the neo-noir train wreck Lonely Hearts starring John Travolta. Am I allowed to also watch that? Yeah, you can. I think Goose is only like six minutes long. So if you would like to watch Holy Hearts and tune in, you're more than welcome. Okay, I may. I'll watch Goose then. If I'm not too busy. <laughs> yeah, you seem to be really uh, really up to your eyeballs and work. <laughs> that watch around. Drinking your chock full of nuts. It's true. I've also begun like a daily ritual where I will like wake up and always have coffee. I'm also waking up at like a standard time, which I don't usually do. Yeah, you're a you're a man of the night, aren't you? I am, which I'm not as much now because you know I have so much bartending. I can just get it done, whatever I need to do, and like by the time it's like eleven, twelve o'clock, I'm sleepy. Mm -hmm. Maybe stay up till one, but that's pretty much where my yeah, that's that's me really uh, pushing it to the limits these days. Well, you're no spring chicken. You just had a birthday. It's true. I had a Zoom birthday. Thank you for coming. Nick was the first attendee at my Zoom birthday. Man. He is a beautiful cat. Yes, Louie's a good Louis, boy. Louie. Oh. Louie, Louie, Louie. Is that his full name? Yes. <laughs> Louie, 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 Calabrese. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Well, we sure did it. Until next time, Nicholas. Until next time. Goodbye, everyone. So long. Stay, Stay safe. safe. Wash your hands. Tuttle sign off every episode. Pretty much forever now. We kind of have to. See you. Bye. Bye.